and welcome back, boys and girls, for another special edition of the Michael Deacon Program. Good morning, or good evening, no matter where you may be on this great planet, spinning around somewhere out there. Oh yes, we are live. Welcome back. Glad to see all of you out there. We have lots to discuss here tonight. We have a veteran of the program here returning, Captain Dan Handley, a former commercial airline pilot who has been speaking out about the events of September 11th. Captain Dan Hanley has raised serious questions about the official narrative of 9-11 and the role of the U.S. government in those tragic events. He has returned yet again, boys and girls, and I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Yes, let's turn this down here. Yeah, there we go. My goodness. Feels good to be back and live with all of you in the flesh. Not really in the flesh, but you know what I mean. Regardless, let's get down to brass taxes and bring in our guest, Mr. Dan Handley. What's going on, my friend? Good evening, Michael. Uh, thank you for having me on the program again. Uh, all is well here in Pakistan. Very good. Yes. Straight out of Pakistan, boys and girls. I'm so glad he's here. And Captain, there's so much to talk about. And before we get into this program, I want to thank you tremendously for giving us your time this evening. And again, we have a plethora of topics to discuss here. But before we do, Tell us a little bit about yourself, Dan, just in case there's newer ears out there. Okay. Well, I flew airplanes in my entire working career. I wanted to be a pilot ever since I was a little kid, actually. But I commenced flying 55 years ago at age 19 uh, as a civilian. And uh, that was in 1968. And over a period of two years, I got my private commercial instrument and multi-engine rating before going on to a four-year university. And when I graduated from college, the Vietnam War was still raging, and I had to make service plans. So I had spent all this money learning to fly out of my own pocket. So I chose naval aviation. And over the course of the next 10 years, I uh, flew the P-3 Orion aircraft, which is a four-engine turboprop used to track Soviet submarines during the Cold War. In 1978, I was hired by United Airlines as a pilot, and over the course of the next 25 years, I flew seven different aircraft, accruing over a 35-year uh, career, 20,000 flight hours and 15 different aircraft. So that's, that's my flying background, and I'm not telling you all this to boast about my accomplishments, but to say that with all my experience that I have, and there are other pilots that have more experience than I who will agree with what I say here, is I could not have flown the 9-11 flight profiles, in particular the Pentagon profile uh, at that speed and altitude, and given especially the Pentagon profile, what would what I'd have to accomplish, and neither could the alleged 9-11 Muslim hijackers. I'll mention here that uh, my career ended tragically in 2003 when uh, I spoke out about issues concerning 9-11, in particular safety and security issues, and I was illegally terminated. So I fought that for six years. We can talk about that later if you want. Uh, 
but that's basically my flying background, Michael. Absolutely. We can talk about all those sort of things. And I thought that would be something that's worth noting here. I thought that would be very important for the listeners to understand about you, Captain. Um, I hope you don't mind me calling you Captain. I just feel the need to. I'm not sure why, as I always well, have in every interview. I wear the title, even though I've been retired for some time, to give myself some credibility for people uh, that are tuning into our program that we have that I can talk about here in a minute if you'd like. Absolutely. But one of the driving points I wanted to make very clear to the listener out listeners out there is the fact that discussing this sort of thing, even way back then, was just something you didn't really do at the time. I well, mean, everybody was sort of, you know, looked down upon for going against the grain, especially early on, uh, Dan. Well, in 2002 is when it first started for me, and I did not realize, well, perhaps it wasn't there at the beginning, but I did not realize the depth and breadth of the corruption both within the airline and within the government before I went down this road. So I was kind of naive in that regard, but I learned real quick just how corrupt it is. And I spent six years trying to fight my way back, not to get my job. I was trying to expose the crime that had been committed against me and other pilots like me and got nowhere. I mean, after a six year fight with the US government, the FAA and the airline, they closed my case without interviewing a single witness that I had or reviewing any of the evidence I had. So uh, we can talk about the Whistleblowing Airline Pilots Association here in a little while, but we've established it to uh, try to put a halt to this in the airline industry because it's still prevalent today. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is still very relevant to what's going on even today. We're pretty much, right. yeah, we're, we're pretty much enjoying the fruits of their labor from way back then, from that incredible Tuesday morning that uh, changed the world. Right. Oh, yes. And do you well, still have any recollection of that morning, that Tuesday morning, Dan? Oh, of course. I, uh, I actually slept through the event. I'd come in from the West Coast the night before to Newark Airport and uh, was sleeping in because I was scheduled to go to London that night. And by the time I got up, I didn't turn on the TV. I went in and... Uh, my cell phone had a bunch of messages on, on it. one of them saying, are you all right? And my ex-wife, my wife at the time, left two messages saying, God, Dan, it's so horrible. She's crying. And I'm thinking my kids had died or something had happened to my two kids. Right, yeah. And she's, she's saying, call me, call me. So I couldn't get an outside line either on the cell phone or the room phone. So I finally did. And when I did, I said, are the kids all right? And she's, what are you talking about? I says, does anything happen to the kids? She goes, you don't know. I go, know what? And she goes, two airplanes hit the Twin Towers. They've collapsed. And another one went down in Pennsylvania. And the fourth one hit the Pentagon. And I'm, I mean, uh, my blood froze in my veins listening to these words. And I ran over to the window because I was on the 17th floor of a Hilton and uh, threw the curtain open. And I could only see the north side of Manhattan, but there was smoke over the over the island and the New Jersey Turnpike was like a parking lot and she's screaming, you got to get out of there. You got to get out of there. And I, I really thought we were under attack and the next thing was going to happen would be a nuke in Manhattan. So uh, anyhow, I'll shorten this up. I went over to the airport that day. 
I could, nobody could get in the Newark airport. I put on my uniform and showed my ID. They had the road blocked and they let me through. And I went down and spent the rest of the day with just a handful of pilots who had taxied out, actually saw the airplanes hit and were brought back into the gate. And uh, we were staying there waiting for the next akin to arrive because they said oftentimes if there's an aircraft accident, the next akin rushed to the departure airport and they wanted us. They had an emergency uh, uh, crew coming down from New England that was stuck in traffic that were supposed to meet the next akin and they wanted us to console these people if they showed up, uh, which was kind of unnerving for me. I'm not very good at doing things like that, but uh, they never showed up and I wound up uh, catching a train back to Atlanta, which is where I lived at the time. Uh, but that was my day, uh, day in the Newark airport. And, uh, I'll never forget when I finally did get outside, seeing that huge billowing cloud of smoke rising from the south end of Manhattan uh, where the Twin Towers once stood, uh, it's pretty sobering. Right. Right, yes. Even on video, watching it back during that time, and even today, it's still pretty rough, considering the fact that oh, all yeah. kinds of um, people died. And uh, we kind of yeah. saw them uh, jumping to their death, even. That was uh, pretty wild to see back in the day. It was indeed. Uh, if you'd like, uh, Michael, I can get into uh, the program we've launched here regarding 9-11 and what we're doing. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. I currently serve as a director and international public spokesperson. I volunteered for that position for a global grassroots effort called 9-11 Pilot Whistleblowers. And we got a website at 911pilots.org and a YouTube channel at 911pilots. And the purpose of our organization is to show that we're, there were no Muslim hijackers controlling those airplanes. They were electronically hijacked and remotely controlled through employment of a system called the Uninterruptible Autopilot that we can talk about a little bit later. But it enables a remote source to take complete control of the aircraft autopilot and flight management computer and fly it to its target. But once engaged, the uh, pilots can't disconnect the system. They're along for the ride. So the purpose of our organization has been, we've had limited success with this, but we've been trying to recruit active and retired civilian and military highly experienced pilots uh, who will attest to the fact that I just mentioned that not only could they not have flown the 9-11 flight profiles, but neither could the hijackers. And uh, it was like pulling teeth, getting pilots to come out and actually be interviewed. I'll talk about that in a bit. But uh, anyhow, uh, we use as an example on the homepage of our website that I mentioned, I'll mention first, if you, uh, at, you're sitting at a computer, obviously, if you want to dial up 911pilot.org, I'll be talking about pages on the website. There's a drop-down menu at the top of the page. But uh, one, of the re one of the examples we cite is that Pentagon profile that was supposedly flown by a 29-year-old Saudi Arabian hijacker named Hani Hanjur. Uh, Anyhow, he took all the aircraft, it was American Flight 77, took off from Washington Dulles Airport heading for the West Coast, and it got to cruise altitude for a while and then did an about-face, a 180-degree turn back into Washington and started a descent. Uh, and he got 
the plane got to 7,000 feet, just five miles west of uh, the Pentagon, and it rolled into a 330-degree descending, accelerating corkscrew turn to arrive precisely at the surface without skidding the surface at over 500 knots to precisely strike the Office of Naval Intelligence on its first attempt. Now, what was wrong with this? Well, for one thing, Honey Hunter was a poor student. Right. He came to this. He came to the states in the mid '90s and took some training, and then went back to Saudi Arabia before returning to uh, the states prior to 9/11. And he was such a bad student, he went to re-enroll in a school he had been in before, and they wouldn't even take him back because they didn't want to waste assets on him. But um, this air, this maneuver I just mentioned was replicated in the simulator by a group of experienced pilots and flown. Uh, they attempted to fly it, but they'd crashed the simulator. And yet we've been led to believe Hani Hanjur was able to accomplish this amazing feat on his first attempt after being such a poor pilot. But it gets even better than that, uh, uh, Michael. Yeah, that's one thing, though, one that a lot of uh, people out there don't understand. The fact that this would be nearly impossible, even for those that are very much experienced like yourself, Dan, this sort of a flight, flight plat pattern that they took was just something that, uh, again, not even an expert could uh, easily pull off, and let alone someone that missed most classes. Right, right. He missed classes, and uh, he could barely speak English, which is a requirement to get a, get a license, and uh, instructors at the school say he couldn't fly an airplane. Yeah, so. so logically you hear that, and you think, yeah, well, then how did he do it then? If he was such a poor well, student, and, and we're getting to that, but yes, yeah, someone with a logical, uh, 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 someone that thinks logically would ask themselves that, and they would come to the conclusion that, yeah, maybe there's more to the story. Well, since I've been on last time, I stumbled on a global research article from 2009, and the title of it, it was, I, I've tracked down the author, and we've become friends, he's a an investigative 9-11 investigator and he's written three books on 9-11 but the article's title was how the fbi and the 9-11 commission suppressed key evidence about hani hanjur the alleged hijacker of american airlines flight 77 and this article is on our website if you go to the top of the page it's articles and it says gaffney or if you go to the hijackers page it's there as well but it go goes into detail. The, the National Archives released some information around 2009, and Mark went in and started researching based on what they had released, and it confirmed what he suspected, that he was a poor student, but it goes into a lot more detail than I just did. But it seems that one month prior to 9-11, Hani Hanjur shows up at the freeway airport in Maryland, and he wants to rent a Cessna 172, which is a single-engine Flight airplane, and he went up with two instructors, Sherry Baxter and Ben Connor, who between them flew three flights. These weren't training flights, they were evaluation flights to determine whether or not they'd rent him an airplane. And they both went to Marcel Bernard, the chief flight instructor at the airport, and said, This guy can't fly an airplane, don't rent it to him, which he didn't. Now, I uh, tracked down Marcel Bernard last year. And I called him and left voicemail twice before I finally got a hold of him. And I had left on the voicemail, I left the, my web 
our website so he had a chance to see who I was and what we were doing, such that when I called him, I said, Marcel, he goes, who is this? I said, Dan Hanley. He goes, I have nothing to say to you. Ooh. And then proceeded to chew me out, saying, what are you, what are you even involving yourself with something that happened over 20 years ago? This will never go anywhere. Why don't you just drop what you're doing? I said, well, there's never been an investigation into 9-11, and no, I'm not going to do that. So he talked, he, he acknowledged what I just told you. He says, I didn't fly with them. Two other instructors did. And uh, he hung up. I tried calling him back. And as soon as he heard his, who is this? I go, Dan Hanley. Click. He hung up on me. But it gets even better because supposedly in this article, Hani Hanjur goes down the road to the Congressional Air Charters, another uh, fixed base operator, and supposedly flew with an instructor named Eddie Shalev who came back and said he was a good pilot. Now, how did all this come out? Well, a 9-11 commission staffer <laughs> yes. is the one that investigates this. And none of this was taken under oath before the 9-11 commission. But the only thing that appeared as an end note in the 9-11 commission final report was Eddie Schlev's name was mentioned once, and he said he could fly the airplane. So who is Eddie Shalev? Well, he's an Israeli who served in the Israeli Defense Force. And after 9-11, Congressional Air Charter closed their doors, and Eddie Shalev eventually disappeared, never to be heard from again. Now, you can draw your own conclusions there based on what you think about 9-11. But uh, the bottom line is, Hani Hanjur couldn't fly. And it was stifled by Robert Mueller, the FBI director, and uh, Philip Zalikow the executive director of the 9-11 Commission. So right. I, I was going to get into that when we got into the website, but that hijacker's page on the website is really interesting. I actually interviewed Mark Gaffney for about 45 minutes. That's on that page as well. So. Very nice. Okay, yes. Go check that out, ladies and gentlemen, if you are even more curious. And yes, Hani Hanjour. Oddly enough, um, he stayed in the same apartment complex as a friend of mine, uh, many, many moons ago, Dan, which is very strange. Yes, the hijacker that the 9-11 Commission claims that on his first flight with a jet, he performed maneuvers that not even a top yeah. gun military pilot could have done. Pretty wild. Right. Yes, exactly. it's very, uh, very uh, strange. Very strange. But yes, we're led to believe that this guy that was going to flight school quote-unquote flight school, training in a Cessna. Yes, he was able to maneuver this giant plane. Yeah, it sounds, sounds like bullshit, Dan. It is. And the evidence that we presented, I'll, I'll talk about letters that have been written, but the evidence we presented to the government uh, caused them to clam up on us, uh, especially when we presented them with that evidence. And I don't need... Uh, Marcel Bernard's testimony before commission because I can say I talked to the man direct and what he told me uh, was what is on our website. So uh, anyhow, I was at a uh, dinner party last week and a young Muslim man came up to me because he overheard me talking to another man that was asking me about 9-11 uh, and says, it's been over 22 years. What are you doing still looking at this? 
And I said, so are you a Muslim? He goes, yes. I just said, your religion and Muslims been trampled for over 20 years for a crime that Muslims did not commit? He goes, well, yeah. I go, well, there's never been a criminal investigation and it's the greatest crime ever committed on American soil. The 9-11 commission was not. And uh, actually, I'll mention that about the 9-11 commission since I brought it up uh, because most people don't realize that that wasn't a, uh, an investigation. And it would not have even occurred had it not been for the next of kin demanding the Bush administration for over a year to initiate an investigation into it. It didn't commence until November 2002. And I, I interviewed uh, last year or the year before an author from uh, Vancouver who's written a book. It's on Barnes and Noble. And the, the uh, title of the book was Unanswered Questions what the families asked and the 9-11 Commission ignored. And during this interview, Ray told me that the next of kin had a whole series of questions they wanted answered. And the 9-11 Commission ignored 70% of them. And of the 30% that they did look at, they only answered 10% of them adequately. So after this commission met, the two uh, co-chairmen, Tom Keene and Lee Hamilton, wrote a book that didn't get any publicity at all because it bashed the 9-11 Commission. It was called Without President, the Inside Story of the 9-11 Commission. And they, they say in uh, this book that it was set up to fail, it was underfunded and time constrained, and was really a joke when you think about it. And Philip Zelikow, the guy I mentioned before, the executive director of the 9-11 Commission, he had the final report outlined before the commission even began their work. And finally, the other one other thing I want to mention, and I think this is important, that not one single pilot, airline, military, or whatever, was permitted to testify before the 9-11 Commission as to the absurd assertion uh, that these uh, pilots flew those aircraft. And you wonder why, because most of them would have laughed when they were asked the question. It's a ridiculous question to ask because these guys were not qualified on those airplanes and they'd never flown a jet aircraft at that speed and altitude before in their lives. And as a result of all this, all these sort of things you've been outspoken about, the FAA grounded you permanently. You say it was a, an illegal retirement by them, Dan. Yes, it was. Uh, I'll get into it only if anyone listening will not accuse me of being mentally unstable when I tell this story because I've done different podcasts and I look at the remarks afterwards and they say, I'm glad he's not flying a aircraft anymore. But what happened to me is called a hostile work environment for psychiatric evaluation. And it's been used for decades in the airline industry to silence would dissident pilots that are speaking out. And it's very unsafe because not only does it stifle anyone from speaking out about safety or security or, or other issues uh, impacting flight safety, but it sends a chilling signal out to other would-be whistleblowers, keep your head down or you'll lose it. You'll get your head blown off. So uh, what happened to me was I started, I, I was flying with crews that knew flight attendants and pilots that died because I was flying on a Newark, on a, New, a JFK. Yeah. And... They were very afraid, and they asked. We we were made a bunch of promises after 9/11, like we're going. They 
reinforce the cockpit door, but they said we're going to have cameras in the back of the aircraft. We're going to have uh, federal air marshals. We're going to have secondary barrier protecting the whole whole list. Of things. We even went up. I even went up to New York and went to taser training because they said they were going to arm us with tasers, uh, which they never did. Anyhow, they were asking me to go say something about this, even though I had doubt, serious doubts about the whole 9-11 story. I didn't mention it to them at the time. But well, yeah, that, that, that's did. the thing, Dan. That's what I want to know. What exactly was it that you said to who? Yeah, I'm, I want to know who stooged you off, Dan, essentially. Okay. I, uh, I went into a chief pilot and to our union rep, and I was real senior, and so were these guys. So I knew him personally. I'd known him for years and said, hey, we were made promises, and they're not being kept, and these flight attendants feel like they're sitting ducks back there, and they want me to come out and say something. And I was being told things like, keep your head down. These guys are nasty. If you take it to the next level, you're going to get hurt, and things like that. Well, I knew I wasn't doing anything wrong, so I start submitting captain reports and because uh, I had a few other incidents and uh, flight safety, not flight safety, captain reports and uh, letters and emails to the company and the union both. And they were ignoring me. And uh, I was told by a management pilot, the uh, airline thinks you're a big mouth, loose cannon whistleblower, and they want you to go away. So I was going to write a letter to the CEO of United saying, hey, my safety and security reports are being stonewalled. And I believe it's a result of United being in bankruptcy and having the union on the ropes where they're not representing me. And uh, I, I called my union boss in, in New York and said, I'm going to send a letter. And he goes, don't do it. Send it to me. And I'll forward it to the union lawyers in Chicago, which he did. And about a week later, I was sitting in the middle of the food court at the JFK airport when my phone rings. And it was the chief lawyer for the union and the grievance committee chairman, they had me on speakerphone. And I said, did you read my letter? And he goes, yes. I said, did it violate the FAA regulations company policy or the uh, union code of ethics? They said, no. I said, do you agree with the content? They go, yes. I said, well, what are your recommendations? You're my legal rep at the union. He goes, don't send the letter in. I said, I thought you just said you agreed with me. Mm. And the, the uh, grievance committee chairman said, Go ahead and send that letter in if you never want to fly another United Airlines airplane again in your life. Damn. I said, why? What are they going to do to me? Yeah. And he said, they'll find a way to professionally, medically, or psychologically ground you for life. We've seen it happen before. Don't do it. So that's when I thought, I'm not going to send the letter in. I decided to implicate the FAA. That's where I was pretty naive, thinking that I would get You would go around. Yeah, you thought you could go around. Right. I was going to uh, bring them in by filing what they're called a flight safety awareness report, and which I did. I filed several of them, and it encapsulated what was written in the one letter that I'd written. I just wrote a series of reports and submitted them electronically and was immediately taken out of schedule without just cause because I was following FAA, Federal Aviation Administration regulation doing what I was doing. And I was told I had, oh, the union told me, I asked them, how far are you going to follow me in? They said, not very far. So when I got a call from my flight office in JFK, they said, you're coming in to talk to us. I said, I can't come in without my lawyer because the union's not representing me and I've gone way out on a limb here and they wouldn't allow it. I was at an impasse. Then. 
the long story short, this went on for several weeks and I was still getting paid. They, they, I was just out taking out a schedule. And finally, my chief pilot calls me and said, Dan, my hands are tied, but I ran into the chief flight surgeon out in Denver. And he told, asked, is Hanley one of yours? And I said, yeah. And he said, put the son of a bitch on sec list. He says, and I said to him, but wait a minute, he hasn't seen a flight surgeon. He goes, do what I'm told. You're told this came from up on top. So he says, I'm sorry, Dan, you're on sick list. So I said, well, now this is punitive. I haven't done anything wrong. Well, I during this time frame, I was calling both the company and union trying to resolve this because we were at an impasse and I got nowhere. And I was going to run out of sick list where I meant I was going to go non-pay. So... I called up my chief pilot again and go, Bob, I'm being punished. I'm going to go non-pay. I got overhead expenses like anyone else. And he, then he said, I knew this was coming. And let me back up. Wow. Because I knew they were going to try to ground me on psychological grounds, I sought the advice of mental health professionals in Atlanta where I lived at the time. I said, here's where I am with the company. Here's what they're going to try to do. I want you to run psyche valves. I'll come in for consultation, et cetera, just to prove I'm mentally stable, which we did together. So when I was told by my chief pilot, look, Dan, submit to the employee assistance program. It guarantees your pay will come in. It's endorsed by the union, the company, and the FAA. All you have to do is go up to Chicago, meet with a flight surgeon, and that'll be the end of it. So I said, okay. So he flew me to Chicago first class. I went over and saw his flight surgeon. And the first one of the first questions he asked me is, have you seen a mental health professional? I said, well, as a matter of fact, yes, I have. Would you like to talk to him? And I pulled out my cell phone and called my uh, shrink in Atlanta and said, here, this is Doc, uh, Doc McGuffin. So he got on the phone. In the meantime, two pilots showed up from the union. Hmm. That were, and I talked to him and told him what was going on. And my intent at that point in time was to go over and see the psychiatrist and then go to the FAA field office and file an FAA whistleblower report. But it didn't get that far. I went over, these two pilots drove me over to where I thought I was going to see a doctor in its office that was to a mental health facility, Alexian Brothers Behavioral Health Hospital. And I said, wait a minute, I thought, well, maybe she's got an office, or he or she's got an office inside. We went in, it was a Catholic facility. I checked in at the front desk. They took me to a room with these two pilots and a Catholic nun comes in who wasn't a psychiatrist, but a psychologist. And here I spent about an hour trying to explain to this woman who has no knowledge of aviation what I was doing in her office. And I saw I was getting nowhere. Well, by the time we got done talking, it was late. It was late. It was like seven o'clock at night and I was exhausted because I've been up since four. And she goes, she goes, look, you've got to see a psychiatrist. A company wants you to see a psychiatrist, and we can make arrangements for you to spend one night here and see her the first thing in the morning. You'll be on your way. Big mistake. I thought, okay, I'll take a room rather than go to a hotel and have to cab it back in the morning. So, <laughs> uh, Dan, you know, uh, if you could only see my face, I've been shaking my head for the past uh, minute here. I can't believe yeah. they did that to you, Dan. That is uh, infuriating. Well, they, they did, and I'll, I'll cut to the chase. Bottom line was, I see this psychiatrist. Uh, while I was there, they made me go to group therapy sessions. Right. I had to eat with some very sick people. And uh, all this time, I'm thinking, I'm going to take, 
I had enough evidence, witnesses, and a correspondence trail a mile long. I thought to myself, I'm going to take the FAA and United Airlines to the cleaners, not financially, but otherwise, when I get out of this place. And little did I was released, even though the psychiatrist had never seen me but once for a few minutes. I asked her what her diagnosis was going to be, and she said, I'm going to say you're bipolar. Well, I, I chuckled. I said, you haven't even seen me. I said, I know what bipolar disorder is. It's mania and depression, and I haven't exhibited either one of those here. She goes, well, that's what I'm going to do. And I said, well, I have two mental health professionals in Atlanta who will beg to differ with you on that diagnosis. So I got out of there, and like I said, I had all this information and evidence, including tape-recorded conversations that would have hammered those two organizations I just mentioned. And the government ignored me. I, I went I went to Washington, D.C., kicking down doors of congressmen and senators. I wrote letters, phone calls, you name Damn. it. And yeah. I got nowhere. They did you so, dirty, Dan. They, they really did you dirty, my friend. I, I can't believe those bastards did that to you. Well, not only that, they, my two young kids were impressionable at the time. Right, yes. They called them, called them in Atlanta and said, something's happened to your dad. He's Oof. in the mental hospital. And, uh, yeah, that's not right. When I got, oh, it was horrible. Yeah. My ex-wife, who was my wife at the time, uh, was a flight attendant. She still is. She just landed in London, and they contacted her when she was checking at the hotel and said, something's happened to your husband. We're flying you back to Chicago. So by the time she saw me, she was freaking. I go, Jeannie, nothing's happened. Yeah, absolutely, though. I'm, I'm sure your wife was in a mania at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, eventually, this couple was something else I won't even get into. Another case I got into that involved United and mobbed up judges in Chicago uh, was the straw that broke back, and uh, we separated and ultimately divorced. So the whole process for me destroyed a 27-year marriage, and my two kids who blame me for the divorce still believe the official 9-11 story. I think. Oy vey. Excuse me. No worries, that, no worries, no worries, Dan. That, yeah, that, that's the that's the thing, though. You know that that's the problem yeah. that a lot of a lot of people out there don't understand that that these things definitely do cause an effect on the family, and yeah. it, it really hits you the hardest, Dan. You know, you lost something that's you know act, you know that's vital, very important, and you know again, Dan. You know, I I've always thought you know your story is the most compelling one I've heard in terms of how whistleblowers like yourself are treated by our very own government. And, you know, right. you actually are no longer a U.S. citizen. This is a result of what you experienced firsthand, my friend. Right. And, you know, people know this, and they've heard stories about other people, and that's how these mobsters get away with doing what they do because they know they can with impunity. They know the government will protect them. So I don't know if you remember Doug Green, the other pilot that's been on your program with me. A right. Few yeah, times. of course. I, I love Doug. He's a good guy. Yeah. Well, Great guy. we got together with some other pilots who have had this. Doug had this happen to him at UPS. They lied about him and they ushered him up. They were trying to force him to see a psychiatrist and he refused and they fired him for insubordination. So and he fought this thing. He's fought this thing for years. He spent a half million dollars on legal fees, and he's yet to see his day in court. So we got together with some other pilots, and we're forming a separate 
grassroots organization, not to be confused with 9-11 Pilot Whistleblowers, but it's yep. called the Whistleblowing Airline Pilots Association. And what we're going to do is we've got a website we're creating and a blog, and we're going to interview these pilots and plaster it on YouTube and social media and send it out to uh, anyone interested. And they're trying to expose this uh, pro wrongful process of elimination of whistleblowing pilots in the industry. Because like I say, it's been going on forever. It's and been going on for too long, yes. And no one even knows about it, Dan. I know, and that's what we... That's what we're trying to do is heighten public awareness of this unsafe practice of stifling whistleblowers in the airline industry. Because yes. a lot of guys heard about what happened to Dan Hanley. And if I was out there and heard something as horrible as what happened to me, I wouldn't want to speak out. Right. I was, I was just uh, naive thinking that, uh, and, uh, that I had uh, support of someone in the government somewhere. Because uh, yes. if you're a whistleblower and if you think... You have laws and regulations to protect you and institutions of government and others that will support you uphold those uh, regulations and rules uh, and you step out there and you find out you have neither it's a pretty lonesome feeling it's sort of right. like wiley coyote stepping off the <laughs> right. cliff and all of a sudden realizing where he's at uh yes sir so, you, you paid the ultimate price dan you really well, did besides dan. my kids not talking to me still, yes sir I uh, destroyed a 35-year career and my reputation as a pilot, and I lost about $4 million in pay pension and stock as a result. So, uh, it's a rough one. It's yeah, a rough it was, loss. Yeah, it was, well, nothing as bad as the loss of my kids. So, yes, sir. Uh, anyhow, yes, I didn't come I, on your program to cry on your shoulder. I, I know. I know, Dan. I know. I just yeah. wanted to drive home that point that these sort of things are quite dangerous for everyone, uh, especially yeah. those that... Uh, do things like yourself. You know, there's lots of pilots, pilots out there, uh, even to this day, that, are, like you said, trying to speak out about this and other things that are currently going on right now. I, I think you know what I'm referring to. And in hopes that we don't, right. you know, I don't want to mention that exactly here. I don't want to get booted off, but uh, lots of pilots out there also, their hearts are being affected by, uh, I'm, I'm sure you could take a wild guess, but we'll leave it at that. But yes, lots of people want to come out. And during that time when you were retired, it was about 2003. And that's when things were very hot. Let me just draw the picture very quickly here for the listeners out there. Those who don't recall that or need a reminder, you know, um, during that time, you know, going against the grain, as I like to call it, going against anything mainstream will always be an uphill battle, uh, Captain and uh, listeners. But if you remember during that time, and I know you do questioning, questioning the official narrative during that time was like playing with fire, Dan. Oh, I know you could in feel oh, yes. 2020, yes. you could, you could feel the tension in the air. All Americans could feel it expressing any sort of skepticism towards the narrative that we yeah. were all being force fed. You were looked down upon and at times even assaulted just for asking questions. Dan, you remember that clearly. I know a lot of people do, but that was such a unique time in our history, a time that set the stage for what was to come, and life essentially changed after that point forward in dramatic fashion. And the bottom line is that we were psyop, Captain. The running theme was patriotism, and understandably, exactly. yeah, understandably so. I mean, you know, we were all sort of made to feel like we're being pumped up, which we were. We were all sort of being groomed to sort of 
um, fake patriotism. And it was all facade. We were lied to by our own government and surprise, surprise. And it's not the first time they've done this. And it won't be the last time that the rug was pulled from under our feet, Dan. Right. And it was also the media. Exactly. Worked in concert with the government. Oh, yes. And whipped up all this patriotic frenzy that that had people tons of flags out in their yard and And everything else. And we saw it again here with what just happened the last few years, Dan. Uh, You saw celebrities and the the media out there pushing this sort of narrative, telling you to do this to save a life, Dan. And we don't really have to get too deep into that. But um, I also hate to say this, but I find it rather appropriate now to mention this right now. After everything that has emerged in the last few years, even the last few months, we've all been reminded of just how far down the rabbit hole truly goes. And I'll I'll be more specific. The CIA the biggest international drug traders, amongst other things, we've seen that they've been involved in the assassination of JFK. They lied about weapons of mass destruction. Right. We discovered that the hijackers were CIA assets. And we've kind of already had known all of these things, but these sort of things have resurfaced yet again, thanks to documents. And uh, let me just further say this, meaning these hijackers were, were CIA assets, um, Got to paint the picture even further here. They weren't exactly on the payroll, but they were on board with the assignment is what I'm saying. And right. What does this mean? Some of you might ask. It means government agencies know well in advance what's going on and that times are fully involved. And you have to ask yourself this question. What's the purpose of the CIA? Do they exist to solve problems, Dan, or simply create them? That's the question I have been asking myself for all this time even back when I was just a, a just a child, back when 9-11 first occurred and I was already getting in trouble for questioning that narrative day one, Dan. Yes. Well, I believe the CIA is there to augment or carry out the deep U.S. deep state agenda. Now, I'd like to momentarily uh, step aside and talk about something else because people talk about 9-11 and yes, the deep sir. state. Go ahead, some people think. Some people say to me, George Bush called, uh, planned and executed 9-11. I go, please. He, he was a mouthpiece. He was a puppet. Okay. And they, so some people say, well, it's a deep state in the United States. Well, I believe it went far deeper than that. And it depends upon your worldview. I personally believe, if you want to talk about the 13 Bloodlines, the Committee of 300, the Bilderberg, right, the yeah. Rothschild Cabell, any of any of those things you talk about out there. I believe any or all of them got together and years ago planned 9-11. And I believe that Israeli Mossad, the U.S. CIA, and the British uh, MI6 and other intelligence agencies colluded together right. to plan and execute this uh this event. So that's where I think the CIA came in on 9-11. But you were talking about those other events in history. You can go back and people think I'm maybe unpatriotic saying this, but you can go back to Pearl Harbor and question whether or not Roosevelt knew that there was a, a Japanese attack was imminent, which I claim based on what I read, he did know. And they sent the high value units out to sea and the attack took place because the United States wanted to engage Japan in a war. Okay, that that's the first test of U.S. gullibility. But you can, 
you can look at the Kennedy assassination, the lone gunman there, the Gulf of Tonkin incident where they claim that uh, North Korean, North Vietnamese torpedo boats attacked the USS Maddox in the Gulf of Tonkin, which was a lie to get us into Vietnam. Right. You can even mention Operation Paperclip as well, all the Nazis we brought over and the fact that we send most of them and even Hitler to Argentina. You know, that all comes out very much later on down the road. And I'm always wondering how history will remember 9-11. Will they will they mention the fact that bin Laden's family was flown out that morning as well out of the country while everybody else right. was grounded? The fact that they buried his body out in sea, which I think that's BS. I, I, I think he died early, early on during this whole conflict. I, I think that was just more propaganda to feed to the American public, Dan. I agree. Uh, again, an aside here, I know a professor here from the University of Punjab who, 44-year physics professor, his last eight years he served as the vice chancellor of the University of Punjab, and he was at a student assembly, and he said to these students that uh, former ISI Director General Hamid Gul had told him that bin Laden died in 2005. He said this publicly. Well, he drummed up charges and fired this 44-year professor for speaking out about bin Laden, and he's still unemployed. Uh, they drummed wow. up charges, and they even threw him in, went so far as to throw him in jail, but the public outcry was so loud that they released him. So uh, he's written 16 books, and one of them is called 9-11 and the New World Order. He sent it to me, and I read it, and the guy really knows a lot about 9-11 and has a very broad perspective on what's going on with the new world order. Because yes, I, where I was going with uh, the Gulf of Tonkin and all, I believe that Oklahoma City was a test of U.S. gullibility. Okay, I believe that 9-11 was a test of global gullibility, and most people bought into it. There weren't riots in the street afterwards, okay? And now you can get into Ukraine or COVID, which you probably don't want to go there. But uh, other tests of the gullibility of the American and global population is what's going on here. And I I shudder to think what the next false flag operation is going to be because the media is in bed with them. Absolutely. I, I don't watch mainstream media, but I did flip on CNN periodically just to see what they're reporting on COVID with Jake Tapper and John Berman, and uh, it made me sick. I mean, I'm not denying that something was out there killing people, but I don't believe their numbers. I so refuse to believe their numbers that they were putting out, so. Right, a lot of people don't agree with the statistics that we were being, that were being shoved down our throats, and I I think everyone out there can agree with that wholeheartedly it doesn't matter what side you are politically i think we can all sort of agree on that there's so much to discuss here i and we're not even done here um we we do have a phone call here dan and that's one of the things i did want to mention if anybody wants to call in we are more than open to have a discussion with you if you want to call in that number is 424-666-2425 don't be afraid to call in and uh, go ahead caller you are live on the air um this is Charles Walker. I'm captain for our retired United 
Can you uh, repeat that? Similar. Can can you repeat that just quickly? I'm sorry, you, you sort of got cut off. Yes, I said I'm a retired captain, uh, United Express also, and um, had similar situation with the with the union and everything. And they oh, no. told me they sent me for a a test, which I thought was going to be physical, but they turned it into to some mental stuff too. Which they told me don't. The union told me, do not go take that test. Nobody can pass their test. But anyway, um, I wanted to add that um, I, when I was riding on the employee bus, I talked to a mechanic, and he believes he installed a box in that plane that crashed because he said it was real strange. They told him to install it, but don't write it in the logbook. So wow. I just wish I could find that mechanic again, but I think that's a piece of evidence that that adds to what Dan's talking about, that it's a special box that took control of the airplane, I believe. Anyway, yeah. that's well, thank, I, thanks I, for uh, doing this, Dan. What's that? I said, thank you for doing this, Dan. Oh, sure, uh, Captain Walker. Let me just say uh, one thing. Uh, on our uh, remote control page of our website, if you go to the bottom, there's an interview that Rob Balsamo, a captain who uh, founded Pilots for 9-11 Truth, did with an avionics technician named Wayne Anderson. And I tracked Wayne down and about two months ago, we talked for about an hour and a half on the phone, but if you listen to that interview, Wayne actually saw this system in operation and worked on it on a Boeing 757. And guess what year that was? 1996, five years before 9-11. And after he did this interview, McDonnell Douglas called him up and chewed him out. Said, what'd you do the interview for? You're causing us a lot of problems. So we know the system exists. We know it existed prior to 9-11. If you Google uninterrupted autopilot, you'll get a Wikipedia article that says Boeing patented this, uh, this system right. in 2006 after 9-11. Well, that's true. We got the patent. We know that. But we also know they've developed this system since... Uh, as early as 1944. Right. It was used oh. in World War II, matter of fact. That's correct. Yes. And it goes, it, it gets pretty deep, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, caller, um, I don't want you to hang up just yet, but you are definitely on board with what we've been discussing here tonight about, in reference to like the hijackers, for instance, Hani Hanjour and the yes, rest. Sir, it, it's, yeah, it's impossible that if, People have ever flown an airplane to how hard it is to fly visually. Even though it was a clear day, it's still, especially at high altitude, you can't really tell where you are. And to be right. able to, I mean, it'd have been much easier for just to follow the river and hit the Pentagon. I agree. I, no, I, they didn't hit. Yes. It, that would have went right in, uh, in Dick Cheney's office if <laughs> they had done that. That would have been good. But no, they, they had to hit well, the good people at... that were doing the audit on the the lost money right uh honey honjor was honey honjor was the michael jordan of aviation <laughs> pretty wild yeah, exactly pretty wild stuff there uh dan sorry go ahead i didn't mean to cut you off there no i was just going to say three direct hits on three buildings had any one of them not been accomplished it wouldn't be mission accomplished they wouldn't have been successful in doing what they did and people say can this autopilot do it absolutely the, uh, and you'll attest to this, Captain Walker, the uh, navigation system on today's modern commercial jet aircraft is derived from cruise missile technology, and it's extremely accurate. This is evidence 
even though you have a radio signal, it's evident on an auto land of an aircraft where the weather is below a certain visibility. Pilots are required to auto land the airplane, and the airplane touches down in the touchdown zone and tracks down the center line of the runway until the pilot disconnects the uh, the autopilot. And I'll, I'll mention one other thing. Had only the twin towers been hit that day, they would have been forced to call it an act, a terrorist act. But since Hani Hanjar's airplane supposedly struck the Pentagon, they, they said it was an act of war and declared war on Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and used it as an excuse to go in there with their unjustified and illegal invasion. And Dan, let me just ask you and the caller here, what struck the Pentagon in your opinion? <laughs> well, let me just say that. Go ahead. Go ahead, caller. Yes, if you want to answer that one first, it'd be more than be my guest. Yeah, well, I just think it's another piece of evidence is that Atlas uh, that crashed here at uh, Anahuac and Houston's um, uh, Amazon Prime 767. Um, and that thing, it reached a similar speed, but it was just totally uncontrollable. They, they tried to recover. I don't know if you, you might want to look into that, Dan. The, I forget the number. Okay. I thought it was suicide, but now they're saying that it was just they couldn't get control back because it, 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 it got up to like 500 knots. I didn't think the thing could fly 500 knots at that altitude, but evidently that one did. But it crashed. They couldn't control it. Well, that's all. Mike, Michael, you were talking about what hit it. Yes, sir. The big argument is, was it a, was it a missile or was it American 77 or was there an aircraft? Swap right. There was, there, there was an eyewitness on the ground there and his story changed uh, dramatically. I'm forgetting the, the gentleman's name, um, but go ahead, Dan. Well, 9-11 pilot whistleblowers doesn't claim any of those things. All we're saying is Ani Hanjir couldn't have flown it and an uninterruptible autopilot could. Now I've seen, I mean, the argument for a cruise missile was the hole was too small, there was no debris, there were no body parts, etc. okay? But I hope David Chandler, who's a physicist from Denver, calls in because he emailed me and said he wanted to talk because he showed me compelling evidence that American 77 was in fact there. And I would like him to address that side of it because I spent about an hour one night on share screen on Skype with him and one of his cohorts. And they showed me all the evidence they had from cockpit flight recorder uh, data that they recovered. And uh, it was it was pretty believable. But the fact of the matter is, I see these arguments all the time on social media about what, which one it was, uh, whether it was a missile or, or an airplane. And I said, where yeah. are you going to go with your information? Because the FBI won't release the camera tape from 80 cameras around. Yeah, that's the, the thing. Uh, right. That's the thing. A lot of cameras were confiscated, so we can't really see the footage ourselves. And, you know, again, logically, you would say, OK, why are, are we children? We can't see the footage. Well, they claim it's because of national security concerns. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, come on, you know. Right. Exactly. Yes. I mean, they went so far. There was a Virginia Highway Patrol car that had a camera on it. There was a security camera on top of the Doubletree Hotel and one on a Sitco gas station. They went in and confiscated those and they won't release them. So 
there's no excuse that the FBI can give as far as I'm concerned. Right. Isn't it, isn't that convenient that footage just either goes missing or they don't know where it's at. Uh, Example, the moon landing, they don't know where the original footage went. The cameras that were allegedly working when Jeffrey Epstein was uh, in that holding cell, they mysteriously stopped working. Now they're completely gone. No one knows what happened to them. I mean, uh, Bin Laden again, I mean, isn't it all such a convenience for these individuals in these abc agencies dan yes it is it's like magic not, not surprising but Ooh, yeah you're right magical right also exactly. <laughs> also i wouldn't worry about comments on youtube dan because they got unit 4700 over in israel and all they do is sit there and make comments like that yeah there's a lot of people online though that are you know they want to counter every single thing that you gentlemen uh, say, and we've we've already seen that here in the chat room, people that want to discredit you, uh, Dan, already, there's lots of people like that. I've already gotten emails saying, why are you talking to that guy? He's lying. I, I know. I, I've seen your comments before. There's lots I've, of, uh, you I've know, lots you of idiot. There yeah. were no planes. You idiot. It was a missile. I didn't say there wasn't a missile. I think there's lots I of shills, though, uh, Dan, there are lots of shills that are trying to discredit you. I think these are people that have been paid uh, by someone, uh, Dan, and lots, of, and it, it happens though, believe it or not. And you know, I'll, I'll get into that in a second here, but go ahead, Dan. What were you saying? No, that was it. I mean, I've read the comments, and people say, You idiot, there were no planes. You idiot, there was a cruise missile that hit the Pentagon. And I come back and say, I never said there wasn't. I never said there was. All we're saying is the hijackers couldn't have flown the airplanes, and there's a system called the uninterrupted autopilot that could so uh and that's that's our stance on things so anybody that's criticizing uh, me for what i'm saying here right now i haven't said one way or the other uh what i believe everyone has so many different theories of what what hit the tower what didn't hit the tower and going back to the cia for just one moment here one strange aspect is that both the fbi and the cia aren't always on the same side of things, by the way. They don't always communicate with one another. Some reasons make plenty of sense, while others make zero sense completely. Can either one of you guys name one positive thing that either the CIA or FBI have done to better this great nation? I mean, I can't. If anyone out there listening, please call in. You know, I could wait. Let us know. Just one positive thing that these boys have done and um, guys, we might be well, here. They, we might be here all night if that's the case. They incinerated all them babies in Waco. Federal baby incinerators. Yep. My and goodness. They blame Terry Nichols and McVeigh for Oklahoma City. My goodness. Well, caller, I do want to thank you for being a part of the program. We will let you go here and um, take another call. Um, thank you so much, thank though, you. for, yes, thank you so much for calling in. We love yeah, that guest. You. Call in whenever you want, my friend. Thank you for um, listening. And there he goes. We we did have someone else calling in here. Um, I think that might have been the person that you wanted to talk to. I'm not quite sure. But let's see if we could call them back. This is the only show that will call you back if you called into this program. We have your number, and we will definitely call you back. If you called in, I think not many not too many shows do that sort of thing. Uh, caller, go ahead, turn off uh, your listening device. By the way, you are live on the air. Go ahead. Thank you for the 
program and thanks to Mr. Hanley. I just wanted to bring up uh, a Wikipedia page and you don't have to believe Wikipedia. There's links, uh, external links that support this. Uh, if you type in controlled impact demonstration, it will take you to a, Dan's mentioned this uh, before. I just wanted to highlight it. Uh, it will take you to a history of, in 1984, of the experiments that were done in the desert, 14 flights listed right here on the Wikipedia page uh, of a remote control aircraft that was uh, that flew 69 approaches uh, in 19. And if that's done in 1984, imagine how much better the tech is uh, that uh, Dan is describing here. Right, right. Uh, and Dan, I want to compliment one page called. Uh, Monahan, uh, who talks about some of this, uh, and I think that if more Americans knew this, they would be even more interested. Right. I, that's why I, I do podcasts trying to get people to go to 911pods.org because we I work with a group of people and we put this thing together over a period of four years, and we believe that if you read the whole website, and it isn't a difficult read, and you watch the videos, You'll walk away completely convinced that the hijackers couldn't have flown the airplane, and you'll be knowledgeable about this uninterruptible autopilot system. Where, yeah, at the end of uh, the uh, remote control page, we say you be the judge. Was it the hijackers or the uninterruptible autopilot? So we're not well, saying there's an excellent section here called under articles uh, and Monahan, and uh, right. if I could make a suggestion for a future program about that. Uh, this this dovetails with the incredible Wikipedia article that will prove to any skeptic beyond a shadow of a doubt that in 1984 uh, the technology existed to uh, make 69 approaches, which is uh, is astounding, really. So anybody right. that that doesn't believe uh, the first part of this, uh, well, they, they simply need to get educated. Uh, and again, and that, thank you both for uh, sure. spending the thank time on this it. very important uh, uh, topic. No worries. Yes, it's a very important topic that I don't want people to sort of forget about. You know, we are sort of in that generation that is laced with apathy and barbiturates, unfortunately. Yeah. And people just seem to forget about everything. So, yes, caller, um, thank you so much, though, for being a part of the program and calling in and letting your voice be heard. Don't be a stranger. Call in again and be a part of the program. Thank you. I will, and I'll subscribe and spread the word. Thank you. You got it. Yeah, share the show. Much love to you, my friend. There he goes. And, uh, yes, lots of uh, folks calling in here, and uh, we need to call this person here. Um, uh, they left a voicemail here. Let's call this uh, person back here. This might be the person you were looking for, Dan. Hopefully yeah. it was. And, uh, yes, ring, ring. Hopefully they answer their phone here. Yes, oh. caller. There you are. Caller, go ahead. You are live on the air now. Oh, uh, it's good to see this subject back on the on the front burner. This uh, Getting away with this, something this atrocious for 21 years is just, it's... It's outrageous. It's it really is. Now, oh, I just, uh, luckily I met Captain Dan Hanley a couple of years ago, and we had already been pretty much on the same page for a while. Yeah. But I just... Uh, I like relating to people on 9-11. I was in a sports bar in New Zealand. Oh, my. And uh, Nice. 
flat screen TVs were new. They're up on the wall behind the bartender, and we're watching the plane hit the building again Ooh. and again and again. Then an hour later, one comes straight down, not over with impact, just straight down. And the bar was from people hushing, gossing, oh my God, they're in shock. Fifteen minutes later, the other one does the same thing. Straight, not over with impact, straight down. And uh, it was like a, a in choir, in concert. The whole room full of dairy farmers said, holy shit, someone blew up the buildings the airplanes blew into. Now, this is extremely embarrassing because I lived in New Zealand a long time, and these people are not too bright. They spray weed killer and they pull cow tits, and they didn't fall for this. And, you know, uh, seven hours later, when Building 7 comes straight down again, I, I mean, it just gets really infuriating. And I have my own fellow veterans at the VA clinic hack on me and threaten me and everything because I'm like, excuse me. Oh, yeah. We don't build wimpy skyscrapers. We build world-class engineering marble. And it got to the point they put a, you know, a sign up on the door, no discussing 9-11 at this clinic. <laughs> Absolutely. I would I would imagine that would be like a sort of red flag for anyone, especially if they serve time. And again, I got to remind everyone that these were like hostile times. You couldn't say anything disparaging, anything against the official narrative narrative that was being pumped into our eyes constantly day and night. We were psyoped in such a crazy way. We were all traumatized and a lot of people seem to forget about that. We we were definitely psyop big time, and it happened again just a few years ago. But we again we won't go into that. I don't want to get booted off. But you all know what I'm talking about. We've all experienced it firsthand. I mean, um, absolutely. Time is. I mean, all these sort of things. It, history just keeps repeating, unfortunately. And look at all the problems that we're facing right now. These aren't problems that just happened yesteryear. These are things that have been uh, happening forever. Yeah, and this 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 incident's part of a plan that was in the works for twenty, thirty years. A long time, a long time. Who was yeah. it? Arnon Minson and made the movie The Medusa Touch, and that's the prime example. It's it's like they give what do you call that predictive programming? Predictive programming. They'll yes. Make a movie, put this idea in these idiots' heads, and, and sure enough, they pulled it off. They made it happen. And here's the thing, though: um, a lot of people out there are finally coming to that realization that this narrative that we were force-fed was all BS. And again, they did it to us, but this time it backfired. Now a lot of people are starting to wake up and sort of slowly realize that all oh, this. Exactly right. There's uh yes, sir. The, the thing is, is it screwed up. If the plane that Gibney shot down in, in Pennsylvania had made it to World Trade Center Seven. The American people wouldn't look like such a bunch of idiots, and me and Dan Hanley probably have to shut the hell up. But it didn't. And like Christopher Bullen said on, on 9-11, we were given a gift at 5.20 p.m. We're just not using it. And the problem is, to use this gift, you're going to have to be anti-Semitic. And to find out that there's no Muslims, and now we've dropped bombs on women and children in eight countries for 21 years, there's only one way to apologize for that properly. And personally, I push the the 110th expulsion. Right. People don't realize these people called Jews have been kicked out of every country they ever set foot in. They have a history that is so rotten. And, and like, uh, I didn't know anything about Judaism or, or the nightmare that is on humanity until I started looking into 9-11. And uh, it just, it's, it's stunning. And the uh, self-censorship, Christopher Boleyn uses that a lot. As Americans are trained to self-censor, 
and they do. It works great. You're not allowed to say anything about the precious victims, and, and that's how they got away with it. Right. And that's did still being, hear, yeah, that's still being implemented what today. Rick DeSantis what did he say? The other day? Did you hear what Sorry? Rick DeSantis signed the other day? Oh, what was he saying, Dan? He, he, he oh, flew yeah, over to Jerusalem uh, to sign a bill for the state yeah, of Florida. Yeah, DeSantis went to Israel to pass a uh, law for Florida. Just, you know, at some it, point, we got to take it's a felony up to the plate and start taking these assholes speech. out. That's, that's open, clear-cut treason. Israel is a country in the Middle East full of Poles and Russians. They don't have any business making our laws. And it gets to the point I just... Well, Captain Dan Hanley knows I've had a, several visits from the FBI because... Oh, no. And, you know, I don't give up. And, for, and my daughter went to Iraq. She didn't understand. And she paid the price over there. And my brother, who's... A reasonably intelligent man, when uh, he's a pilot also, went and dropped bombs on people and all that. And, and I try and get him to look at that third skyscraper, and he resorts to that faggoty conspiracy theorist shit that sends me wild. And uh, I just, it's had a major impact. Uh, when uh, the FBI was here, they came to my house with the, the Maui police, and they come up and they said, are you Federal Reserve Brown? And I said, yes. And they said, are you threatening to kill Donald Rumsfeld? And I said, ain't you? And, they, you know, they just crack up and take off. They don't leave me, me in handcuffs and leave with their heads hung in shame. And I'm chasing them up the drive and going, let's talk about why. Where are you going? And, yeah, it's really. <laughs> well, didn't they come to your house and uh, ask somewhat about comical. me? What was that, Dan? Uh, what you say? come to your house and ask about me? Thank you, pardon? Didn't the FBI come to your house and ask about me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They wrote down you. Uh, they wrote down Christopher Blinn, Dr. Alan Sobrowski. I, I rattled off a long list of names, and it was year, a couple of years ago, and uh, Danny Jewinko had just been murdered right after that interview. And I told him, you know, <laughs> this is embarrassing. This is not some who done it with a lot of complicated twists. This um, is embarrassing. A caller, we might have to... Uh... Job, you know, so they said, uh, we're not worried about you doing something we're yes. worried about you motivating others to do something oh i said well i'd like to motivate you you're the one who needs to do something right um caller you know given the fact that you know you've talked to the feds we might have to end your call here i mean you don't want to get involved with a criminal here on this program yeah <laughs> that's a joke by the way <laughs> yeah that's me the criminal <laughs> <laughs> yes the yes you're the real criminal here in all this right Oh, that's that's crazy. Uh, I'm glad you called in. Yeah. Thanks for letting us know about that. Uh, I'm sorry you had to deal with the feds coming to uh, knock on your door there and bother you. Oh, no, it wasn't a bad thing. They left. It, it, it was good when they got to leave embarrassed. And, and the, uh, I gave them permission to talk to my shrink at the VA. And, the, and my doctor there was really cool. She's a, a lady from Haiti, and she's up to speed on everything. And she says, Mr. Brown's problem is he's right. <laughs> very nice well once again i do want to thank you for uh, giving us a call here we'll talk to you soon don't be afraid to call in um next time we do one of these shows hey terrific um yeah i just got back from bangkok and got terribly sick on the plane so we sound like no worries it's really good to hear this uh captain dan hanley oh yes he's really stuck his neck out for all of us as he in a big way we love and respect and, uh, Dan so much, yes, and thank, thank you for the call. Thank you for having him on the show and going after it. it. We need to do this 21 years later or not. You got it, yes, uh, absolutely. We can let this go and uh, keep fighting the good fight out there. 
where you are, my yep. friend. Stay strong, and we'll talk to you soon, brother. Thank you, Michael Deacon. Have a nice day. Have you too. Bye bye. We love that. And there was one other person uh, trying to call in here, uh, Dan. I think they might have one more question for you, and uh, we'll continue along to all kinds of other things here. And um, caller, yes, you are live with myself and Captain Dan Hanley. Go ahead, sir. Hi, this is David Chandler. Uh, David. Am I on the show? Yes, you are live, my friend. Okay. Um, Anyway, so um, a couple of us, I'm Dan, who can tell you a little bit more who I am or whatever, but uh, I'm uh, uh, active with Scientists for 9-11 Truth and a couple of other organizations. But um, a couple of us uh, did quite a bit of research on the evidence at the Pentagon. And it's very, very clear that there was a 757 that hit the Pentagon. The early photographs uh, showed a small hole in the Pentagon wall but that if you look at the photograph again, there's fire hose spray obscuring the entire first floor. So that's just a small hole in the second floor. Just a few minutes later, the same photographer took another one that showed all this wide, uh, about 100 foot opening on the ground floor. And there's actual impact damage beyond the opening where the tips of the wings slapped on the walls. And so you have impact damage on the outside that couldn't have been made by an explosion or a cruise missile or anything else like that. So I'm just saying, if you look at our website, 911speakout.org, there's a Pentagon tab there and there's a ton of evidence. I just wanted to point that out. Very nice. Very nice. Thank you, David. Okay. So anyway, um, there was a lot of very early misinformation about the Pentagon and it took a lot of effort. There's a lot of people who got sold on the idea that there was some kind of a farce going on, that there was a missile or or something else entirely. Uh, but it, once you actually uncover it all, there's a tremendous amount and I can't, you know, there's, there's a ton of stuff. If you go there, you can wander through it yourself. There's, uh, we have a whole series of videos that show um, different aspects. A lot of people are so, going to basically uh, want to right. A lot of people are going to argue with you about that. They say for sure it was a missile. Some say no, it was a plane. But yes, there's I, no evidence whatsoever of a missile. The missile could not have done the kind of damage that's actually visible there. And we have photographs of all of the first floor damage. Uh, it, you, know, you can piece them together like a mosaic, and you can see the extent of the damage. Uh, the other thing okay. is, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, there's the actually, you know, there was two video cameras that did record the plane as it was crossing the lawn. Uh, and uh, you can actually see the plane itself if you use uh, a special blinking technique. Uh, so that's demonstrated there as well. So if you want to see the plane crossing the lawn, it's there. The plane took out a notch in the top of a tree as it crossed the highway before it came down to the lawn. So there's quite a bit of evidence. Well, by the way, the right wing tip knocked a rung off of a, a camera pole a camera by pole. the freeway. Right. You see the scar and the rung is missing. And the left wing tip grazed but did not break uh, the second light pole. So it's bent and knocked over but not uh, broken. So what you have there literally is a wing tip to wing tip measurement, which exactly matches um, the, the wingspan of a 757. 
And there's two other scars that I discussed in the evidence there that uh, correspond to the path of the right and left engines. And those two scars are exactly the right spacing to have been at 757. So there's very, very solid evidence of a 757. Okay. And David, anyway, what about it, it's all there about, to uh, peruse on your leisure. What about airplane parts and body parts, David? I remember you showing me uh, on Skype uh, uh, the information that right. was inside the building. Oh, right. There, there was a major operation to recover body parts. They found everybody on the plane was accounted for except one child. And there are, um, there are I, think, I don't know if it's, I think it's three uh, unidentified uh, passengers on the plane, and they can tell from the DNA that it's of Middle Eastern origin and that two of them are related. But you don't uh, have the actual identities of the people but you do have the identities of all the actual passengers. And um, uh, there's a, a video I have there that talks about, it's called um, AA-77 at the Pentagon, and it shows the evidence that the a flight data recorder is authentic. So if you're speculating that somebody fabricated all that data, uh, that's the argument on why we believe it's authentic. So we've done a very massive job on trying to actually um, give an evidence-based uh, account of what happened there. Very good. And I, I've seen it. Uh, David shared all of it with me, and uh, it's compelling evidence. And I'm sure you have people in the chat room that are trying to crucify David for what yeah. he just said. But uh, unless they've well, gone through the evidence on his website, well, not yet. What yes, not yet. They're not going to no. take that apart just yet. Uh, in a few hours, though, no. there will be people that will <laughs> argue against what was just said here, no doubt. Sure, of course. Yeah. As I get always. a lot of hate mail, that type of thing. <laughs> but uh, it's very thoroughly yes. been researched. And if, if anybody is on the fence about it, again, the website is 911speakout. Dot org. Okay. And I guess I'll get off the phone so others can talk. There you go, my friend. Thank you so much Thank for you, uh, calling. Talking to you. Yes. Bye-bye. Take Goodbye. care. And uh, there he goes. That was David. And uh, yes, he's saying that it was, in fact, a plane and not a missile that struck the Pentagon. And uh, Cindy says, we saw a missile on TV one time, just once, never again, in a few minutes before the building was hit. That's what Cindy Lou says. I haven't seen the footage. I don't know. That's why I refuse to get in this debate. I mean, our argument ends with was it the hijackers or the, or the autopilot. And uh, we believe with the evidence we have against Hani Anjur, it shoots the holy hell out of the official narrative regarding him having flown the airplane. Right. And the events of 9-11 was the catalyst for my journey into these subjects, which has transpired into a lifelong pursuit of the truth. You know, before 9-11, I was reading about conspiracy theories on various message boards online, uh, Dan, very early in the game. And being as young as I was, I didn't really know what to believe. Something sounded a bit more tangible than others, but I clearly remember reading what our government would potentially have in store for us. Then, lo and behold, 9-11 unfolds that Tuesday morning, and I knew the world was about to change forever. And sure, yeah. enough, every, yes, and sure enough, everything I once thought was total nonsense, Dan. 
has come to fruition many, many years later down the road. And, you know, I'm sitting here almost traumatized from it all, Mr. Hanley. Ultimately, it was a global assault. And we have all taken a hit in the form of, I guess you can say, the Patriot Act. Patriot Act and all these other things that came after it. After it. And right. again, now I fully understand my experience is insignificant compared to those whose lives were lost and or jobs which were lost, families. And again, uh, Captain Hanley, your life was also altered forever. And we got into that here tonight. And again, I do want to thank you, you know, for sticking your neck out there for all these years, Dan. And, uh, you know, you, you've taken a huge hit, Dan. Well, that's... uh 20 years old right. when all that ha happened. So uh, it happened and I learned from it. And uh, if I had a choice to do it over again, I probably would, but not the same way given what I know now. Right. And, and, uh, and you, and you continued, you know, you, you sort of reinvented yourself to a certain degree. You know, you have moved away from the country. You remarried, you have gone your life uh, back on track, I guess you can say. Yes, I, I have. I'm happily married to a Pakistani woman. We've been married for 13 years, which is how long I've lived here. Uh, and I've acclimated to the culture here after that period of time. But uh, the people here, in spite of what the war and terror did to the country, are very warm and friendly to, uh, to me uh, ever since I've been here. So I thought when I first came over that they hated Americans, but uh, they don't like the government, but not, not the people. They Understood. warmly embrace me. Right. And Dan, you know, you mentioned earlier about Honey Honjor, and that's kind of your main focus. But I do want to ask you, who's to blame for the events of 9-11, in your opinion? Well, there's a bunch of people. Uh, <clears throat> I talked about my own global vision of who I believe rules the world. And I believe it was a, a group of people. I, I believe the most wealthy, powerful, ruthless subhumans on the planet ordered the hit. And I believed it was carried out by who I mentioned, Mossad, CIA, MI6. Oy vey. Uh, yes. Yes, that, that's who I believe. And people say, well, why would they do that? Well, you've got to understand the Rothschild cabal, the creation of the nation state of Israel, the Balfour Agreement, the uh, Greater Israel Project, and uh, what that's all about. Uh, understand uh, their rationale for doing what they wanted to do. And then you go to the U.S. side of this thing. Someone reaped the benefit of a $6.2 trillion expenditure that occurred since 9-11. And I claim it was a military-industrial complex. And I believe they were uh, salivating after 9-11 for the money they were going to reap with the wars that followed. And uh, lots of money was made that morning, by uh, the way. Uh, yeah. Oh, that morning. Yes. Lots of money. Even, even beforehand, lots of money was made in terms of insider trading that also occurred. Right. Yeah. That's a whole nother story there, to be honest. But uh, lots of insider trading went on prior to the events of 9-11. And there's lots of evidence uh, for that very thing, boys and girls, in case you didn't already know, but I'm sure... Most of you knew that already, but that's a that's always a clear sign of a false flag, uh, Captain. Yes, it is. Um, I 
I just want to mention we were covering the website, and I'm not going to go through the pages. I'm just going to try to encourage people to go to 911pilot.org and go to the drop-down menu and read the uh, pages. Uh, I will mention that we we wanted to conduct interviews of pilots around the world, which we did, but YouTube started taking them down, saying it was hate speech. Ah. So we we quit using YouTube. <laughs> what you see on the website are 10 interviews that I personally conducted with different pilots from different backgrounds from around the world. And they all said the same thing, that uh, Honey Hunter couldn't have flown the airplane. So and that that's why I say don't take my word for it. Go listen to these other pilots that, uh, that I talked to. But uh, the, the other thing I want to get into for all my critics that you have in the chat room there, for 20 years, well, since Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms have come out, I've sat and listened to all the debates, all the hate speech. Oh, yes. All the arguments people have over whether it's a missile, no missile, plane, no plane, what happened in, in uh, Pennsylvania, et cetera. And I say, fine, suppose you have all the evidence to prove everything you're saying. Where are you going to take it? I know. Where are you going to go, go with that? F- you're going to go to the FBI? Well, <laughs> I, I'm leading into what our organization did. And I was at the forefront of it because I wrote the letters after consultation with people. But in uh, July 2020, I called the FBI. And let me back up. We knew from the outset that we were going to get nowhere with the U.S. government, but we wanted to prove it to ourselves and others that they were not going to investigate the crime or our, our allegations. Okay. But I called the FBI and said, I want to report information concerning a crime. They said, what's a crime? I go, 9-11. And a long pause. What are you reporting? And I said, the aircraft were electronically hijacked and remotely controlled. I went on explaining that. She takes down this information. Okay, the FBI will call you if they want more information. Well, I waited a month and called them back. (laughs) And they they got hostile with me saying, we told you if we wanted more information, we'd call you back. So I called TSA next. The guy was congenial. We talked for about 10 minutes. He goes, go to the FAA or Boeing on this. So I found an in with the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, by filing a report via their hotline. And initially, they were receptive. They assigned an aircraft engineer in Seattle to the case. And I talked to him once. But when they realized the depth and breadth of the information we had to back our allegations, they went silent on me. I'll jump to the chase here. Over the course of 30 months after being stonewalled by the FAA, uh, we tried writing letters to the FAA administrator, the national, uh, uh, the director of national intelligence, the attorney general, Department of Transportation, the FBI, We even wrote Biden and the DOT and DOJ inspector generals and went so far as to go to the joint, I mean, the House Government Oversight and Reform Committee, which oversees uh, federal whistleblower cases. My point is they shut us down. They wouldn't respond to letters or emails or phone calls. They wouldn't return, uh, which we were successful in proving our point, and that is you can't. You're not going to get anywhere with all your information. You go, I don't care what relevant agency and government you go to, you will get nowhere with them. And you have to trust us with our 30 month experience. Now you jump over 
to the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry and people say, who is that? Well, a group of seven lawyers got together with the biggest 9-11 whistleblowers in the world and compiled 57 evidence packages and presented it to a U.S. attorney in New York, which compelled him to announce that he was convening a grand jury investigation into their allegations that World Trade Center buildings 1, 2, and 7 were brought down by controlled demolition and not by jet aircraft impact damages or the fuel fires that ensued. So what happened with that case? The Department of Justice, the FBI, and the National Institute of Standards and Technology blocked their evidence and the, the grand jury from moving forward. So they took it to court, went through the appeals level, all the way to the Supreme Court several months ago, asking them to hear the case and the Supreme Court refused to do it. So they went the legal route, we went the political route, and together we got nowhere. So what is 9-11 pilot whistleblowers doing right now? Well, who besides the next to Ken suffered the most as a result of the crimes of 9-11? I'll answer that for you. And 1.9 billion Muslims in the world. I mean, Islamophobia has flourished based on crimes that Muslims did not, com we claim Muslims did not commit. So we've written to the uh, Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Now, who are they? They're uh, headquartered in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and it's the UN of the Muslim world. And uh, the representatives there are from 57 Muslim nations, and it's the ministers of. Uh, foreign affairs at each country that serve as representatives of their country at this organization. So we've written them and a number of their ministers saying, initially, we said, why don't you establish a, an international Islamic commission for 9-11 uh, investigation, which essentially is a Muslim 9-11 commission. And we didn't get a response. We've written several letters and emails, and we finally, and make, made calls, and finally we've decided that we go the other route and that we would establish this commission and invite them to join us, which is where we're at right now. So I'm sitting in Islamabad, Pakistan, and just about every Muslim country has an embassy here. And right now we've written them and I'm trying to get in to meet with their ambassadors, our representatives, to get them to climb on board because besides them, we've decided that any Western country will not engage in this process because so many of them are either uh, implicated in the crime or they're too afraid to speak out. And uh, what we will determine, we've written the, uh, to Russia and China asking them to join us because we need a big government who is not supposedly involved in 9-11 to back our commission. And if we're unsuccessful here, in my opinion, the crime of 9-11 will never be investigated. And people I'm working with share the same opinion. We've, uh, I mean, politically and legally, we've exhausted all avenues in the United States. <clears throat> we've gone, we're going to the international community right now and seeing what kind of a response we're getting. So that's where we're at right now. We'll see what happens to be continued. Absolutely. I definitely want you to check in with us 
whenever you get an update, Dan. And I do want to thank you so much for being a part of the program. That's 911pilots.org. For more information, go there and uh, you can check out the website and you have all this information about 9-11. Go there if you are even more curious. And once again, Dan, leave us with your final thoughts, if you have any, and go ahead and um, say goodnight to us here. Okay, I'm 75 years old. I don't need to be doing what I'm doing, but I feel like I know too much about the lies of 9-11 to remain silent. So I'll go to my grave, continue doing what I'm doing. And I hope everyone else out there does the same thing because these mobsters have gotten away with this crime so far. And people say the Kennedy assassination still is sitting out there. And I say we're in the information age. We're exchanging information at the speed of light. I'm optimistic that in my lifetime still we will expose this crime so i'll, I'll mention one other thing michael uh, i'm on twitter at dan hanley at dan hanley four and on facebook at captain dan hanley if anyone wants to join me there i'm very vocal about all this stuff very nice Once and my yes sir thank you thank you again for having me on the program i appreciate it absolutely my friend anytime we will do this again on the other side Dan, and once again, thank you so much for being here. We will talk again soon, my friend. Okay, Michael. Take care. Bye-bye. You got it. Bye. And there you have it, boys and girls. That was Captain Dan Handley. My goodness, I hope you guys enjoyed that one as much as I did. And, uh, you know, we are sort of winding down here tonight, and I didn't even get a chance to play some of these audio clips I had for uh, Dan here. One of them was about Donald Trump. Way back in the early days, we have a clip here that I wanted to play for all of you out there. And, well, I thought might as well do it now. So this was originally aired back September 11th, 2001 with one Donald J. Trump. Let's hear what he had to say. Yes, let's hear what he has to say here. It's the most vulnerable place because that's your foundation. And it withstood that. And I got to see that area about three or four days after it took place because one of my structural engineers actually took me for a tour because he did the building and i said i can't believe it the building was standing solid and half of the columns were blown out i mean so this was an unbelievably powerful building uh if you know anything about structure it was one of the first buildings that was built from the outside the steel the reason the world trade center had such narrow windows is that in between all the windows you had the steel on the outside so you had the steel on the outside of the building that's why when I first looked, and you had big, heavy I-beams, was you remember the, the width of the windows in the World Trade Center, folks? I think, you you know, if you were ever up there, they were quite narrow. And in between was this heavy steel. I said, how could a plane, even a plane, even a 767 or 747 or whatever it might have been, how could it possibly go through the steel? I happen to think that they had not only a plane, but they had bombs that exploded almost simultaneously, because I just can't imagine bombs. anything being able to go through that wall. Most buildings are built with the steelers on the inside around the elevator shaft. Wild times, This one right? was built from the outside, which is the strongest structure you can have. How is it possible that um, a Boeing plane would be able to destroy the, or two planes would now be able to destroy the twin towers? Because they were constructed to withstand like a 707 well, attack. it's tremendous power and tremendous heat, and people were willing to die, and uh, when they're willing to die and when they're willing to become kamikazes of a sense, 
uh, there's very little you can do about it. I mean, the, the heat and the power actually was amazing that the, the initial jolts didn't jar the building as much as people would have thought. But the, the tremendous amounts of fuel that was dumped on the building and 1,600 degrees temperature, I guess that's probably more than anything could take. No matter Oy vey. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That was a long, long time ago. All of this was a long time ago. Feels good to revisit history, though, doesn't it? The law has changed, hasn't it? Look around. Yeah, it's pretty wild, right? Who knows what's going to happen next? And uh, my God, boys and girls, we have essentially ran out of time here tonight. And uh, my God, I hope you guys enjoyed that one as much as I did. Good Lord, I do want to thank all of you out there for pressing play here tonight. This was a great one. I do want to thank Dan. And I do want to thank all of you out there for calling in and letting your voices be heard. Never stay silent, boys and girls. Always speak out about these things that have been uh, going on forever. Once again, boys and girls, this concludes tonight's broadcast. My name is Michael Deacon, and I wish you well. No matter where you are on this island Earth, and with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night.
you, your friends, your family, get inside. And no, staying in the car is not an option. You need to get into a building and move away from the windows. Step two, stay inside. Shut all doors and windows. Have a basement? Head there. If you don't have one, get as far into the middle of the building as possible. If you were outside after the blast, get clean immediately. Remove and bag all outer clothing to keep radioactive dust or ash away from your body. Step three, stay tuned. Follow media for more information. Don't forget to sign up for Notify NYC for official alerts and updates. And don't go outside until officials say it's safe. All right, you've got this.